Welcome to Do You Have Scripture for That? This is Clay Garrison. Today we're going to talk about how the Word upholds all things. And when we're talking about the Word, we're talking about John's reference to God the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ. So we're, we're talking about how He upholds all things. Um, and I'm going to try to relate this to how we view the world around us. So by the end of this, we should be able to challenge, to a certain extent, challenge the prevailing view of how the world works around us and, and why things are the way they are and how they function the way that they function. And so a little bit of back, I like to give a little bit of background to some of these topics so that we know um, where we're coming from and what we're trying to target whenever we have these topics. So as a background, just think about the Enlightenment. Since the Enlightenment, um, people have been encouraged to think of the natural world as, as this mechanistic, um, this just this, this mechanistic entity that's upheld by natural laws or laws of nature. And so you know this from, you know, when you were in school and you took either physics or physical science or even, you know, your biology classes and things like that, you can see how everything in our world is explained in a, in a very scientific way, a very, um, like I said before, mechanistic way. Um, this, you know, cause and effect. This one thing happens, which makes this thing happen, which makes this thing happen, and this is how you get this end result. And so you know, we, we have these laws of physics, or we explain um, we're able to uh, stay on the planet because of gravity. Gravity is, is holding us down because of our mass and the, the mass of the earth and its effect on us. It is you know, holding us to the earth. We have all of these laws that we, you know, we, we call them laws because people have done experiments and they, they keep getting the same results. Um, and it's you know the same results over time, and so it's not. They say it's not just a theory; it's a law. It's something that's true in all cases and all circumstances. And one of our issues with this as Christians is whenever people are so rooted in this enlightenment mentality of these laws of nature that can never be transgressed, they get to the point where they say, "Well, miracles can't happen." And we saw that particularly with the deist of the 18th century, deist, B-D-E-I-S-T-S, deist, of the 18th century, the 1700s, and, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of popular figures, uh, Thomas Jefferson being one of those that are, you know, was, was identified as a deist. He actually, uh, not a lot of people know this, but he actually had his own Bible uh, called the Thomas Jefferson Bible, where he, he cut out the instances of miracles and supernatural events uh, cut those out so that it would align with his view of the world working in this mechanistic way that we had just talked about. But these deists of the 18th century, they believed that God created all things and then took his hands off of that creation to let it run on its own. So it's very similar to like winding up a clock and just letting it run. And so in that, in that mentality, you have a world that's created to run on certain natural laws that God has placed within it, and then it just runs on its own. God isn't actively doing anything in the world. It's just everything is uh, acting out according to how God originally created it. So there's a distinction there between 
a God who is actively present and in control of his world and a God who created it all at the beginning and wound it up and now it's just going uh, with that initial force that God pushed it off with, basically. But we see that Scripture doesn't teach an idea of a detached God, but Scripture teaches a, you know, of a God who is present and exercises control over His creation. And that's what we're going to get to by the end of this, is we're going to see that ultimately the Word upholds all things. That all things, the way that, the way that we see the world working is being upheld presently by the Word. So let's let's look at how we're going to get to that. First, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. Like I said before, Genesis chapter 1 seems to be the starting place of a lot of things. So I'm not going to read any particular passage. I'm just going to look at it as a whole. And I want us to notice a few things. One is there's a pattern of God speaking and creation happening. So in verse 3, you see, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And so you, and, and this this refrain is repeated over and over again throughout chapter one of Genesis. You have and God said, so God is speaking, God is speaking the word, speaking something to happen. He says what he wants to happen, what he's decreeing to happen, and then that happens. So let there be light, and there was light. And so you see God speaking, God giving forth His word, and that word is producing something. It is having an effect. It is leading to creation. It causes creation. And we see that God created all things out of nothing. And so that makes all of creation dependent upon him. And we have Genesis chapter 1, you know, assumes God's existence. And then out of that, you know, God existing all to himself. There's, you know, there's nothing besides God. And then out of that nothingness outside of God, God brings forth creation by his word. So... That's known as creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. God didn't have pre-existent matter that he formed creation out of. He spoke, and creation came about by the sheer force of his will, by his, by his power. And we also should notice, before we leave Genesis chapter 1, um, well, back, back to that last point. The fact that God created all things out of nothing is indicative or, or it teaches us that all that all creation is dependent upon him we don't owe our origins to anything else besides God besides him being our creator and so that means in all things we are dependent upon him and we mentioned this in, in a previous episode I don't remember which one but we mentioned that if if somehow if if God could fall out of existence as if that could happen you know uh, but if if he could, if that did happen, then creation itself would fall from existence because we are utterly dependent on his being. Our being is dependent upon his being. So with all that being said, before we leave Genesis chapter 1, we should also notice that the Spirit of God was present to apply the work of creation and make it efficacious. So look at verse 2 of Genesis 1. It says, uh, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you have God who's creating the heavens and the earth. Now, I mean, in, in the Old Testament, there's hints at the Trinity. We don't really see explicit statements necessarily of the Trinity. The, the New Testament helps us interpret the Old Testament to see those instances of the Trinity. But we see God creating the heavens and the earth, God speaking, 
and we can see that it's, it's the Father, God the Father who is speaking. His, what He is speaking is the Word. And then the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters, is, is you know, manifesting that presence there and making God's Word, making His work of creation efficacious, basically making it happen, making it work out on the ground, if, if you want to word it that way. So that's just that was a couple of things I want to notice from Genesis 1 before we jump to John chapter 1. So if you'll go in your Bibles to John 1, go all the way to the New Testament. And this is a very similar passage. I mean, it's you know, Genesis is known for starting with in the beginning, and likewise John 1 begins with in the beginning. So let's read verses 1 through 3, and then I want to scroll down to read verse 14. So John chapter 1 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From this we see that John identifies God the Son. You've got the Trinity who share one essence in three persons or one being with three persons God the Father, God the Son God the Spirit and so we have John who is identifying God the Son with the Word and we know that he's talking that that the Word means God the Son because whenever we go down to that verse 14 he says and the Word became flesh and so it's the Son who became flesh it's the Son who took on humanity who took on flesh uh you know, as Jesus Christ, uh, so that you know He could live the life that we couldn't live. All all of those parts of redemption that required human flesh to be taken on, a human nature to be taken on. That's what the Word did, and so we can know that when He's talking about the Word in the first three verses, that He's talking about God the Son, and that's the whole significance behind this is to show that the Word is God. That this Jesus that John is writing about is the Word. And that word is God himself. That's why he says, in the beginning was the word. So from the very beginning, just like God, the word was there. The word was with God. So there was a fellowship among them. And the word was God. So he's, he's, he's identifying that there's a relationship between the word and between God, the Father. And he's also saying that the word is God, was God. That they have the same identity. They have the same essence. They have the same being. And so that's you know that's a big passage talking about the Trinity, talking about the deity of the of the Son, the deity of Christ. But our point that we want to get at is the word that John chooses to use for the word. In the Greek, that word is logos or logos, and that's a word that is jam packed with with meaning. Um, in Greek philosophy, the word logos served as a a rational, unifying principle for the cosmos. So back in, um, you know, before Plato and Aristotle, when you had those early Greek philosophers, the idea of the Lagos was this, this principle that they came up with or this idea that they had to bring about order out of chaos. So if you remember, we talked about the problem of the one and the many, how there's so many different things in the world, there's so many particular things in the world, but yet somehow we need to have those things unified or you can't really know every, anything if everything is just a particular. Um, 
that might be a little philosophical, but you know that was the issue that they were dealing with. So how do you how do you bring order out of the chaos that's all around you? And their answer to that was this logos principle, this idea of of there's this this rational unifying thing that brings all of it together, you know that runs through all of the universe, all of the cosmos. So that that was this this Greek idea, and it was prevalent in their philosophy. And John chooses to use that word to describe the Son, to describe God the Son. And I I don't think it's just a coincidence that he uses the same word. I think he's trying to import something into what he's trying to say. So John might be appropriating this Greek word for his own usage, but he's also showing how the word made flesh is the highest revelation of God, the word. So what I'm getting at is I think John has two purposes for using this is that not only is he pulling from this Greek idea, you know, trying, you know, drawing on people's uh, background knowledge that they have. He's drawing on this idea of the Logos principle, this unifying thing that binds all of creation together. He's he's basically identifying Christ with that principle. You know, he's not he's not saying this is exactly what the Greek people were talking about. He's saying that I'm trying to draw on this idea because they had a little bit of something right. And I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this over to describe Christ with it. But he's also saying, by me choosing to say he's the word, he's saying that Jesus Christ is the highest revelation of God because he is God himself. He is his word, his revelation. Because that's how God reveals himself, is by his word. And back in our creation account that we read in Genesis 1, whenever God creates, he speaks. It's his word that brings about creation. And so even in natural revelation, when we're looking at God's creation, we're seeing his speech to us from the natural world around us. God is speaking to us, revealing himself to us from what he has created. And in the same way in special revelation, when we read the Bible, we call it God's word because it's God speaking to us through prophets, through uh, through what, what people have written down, that he has inspired that word and people have written it down so that we could have it, so that he still speaks to us through that. That's why we call it his word. And ultimately, his highest revelation is Jesus Christ himself, because Jesus is God. And so that's why I believe that John is pulling this word, you know, to call him the word, um, so that we can understand that Jesus Christ is the highest revelation of God. He, he is the, uh, the most full representation of that. And so we have these dual ideas of of Logos being this Greek principle of, of making order out of chaos, this unifying principle of all of creation, and Christ being the greatest revelation of God. So we're seeing that, you know, John says that the Word is God the Son, and all things were made through the Word. And so that kind of makes sense with this idea of this this logos being this unifying principle of all of creation. If, if all of creation, if God spoke all of creation and it was made through the word, through Christ, through God the Son, if it was made through him, then it would make sense that, that he would be that unifying principle for all of creation. And ultimately what we see is that creation is an act of the triune God. We saw that the Father decrees, he spoke, you know, the... the the Father's will enacted these things. The Son works and fulfills those things as the Word. You know, God speaks and the Word goes out 
and performs. It works. It fulfills. And we see that the Spirit applies that work and makes it happen. You know, that's what we saw back in Genesis. We saw the God, the Father spoke, His Word went out, and the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And you notice that we see the same thing in uh, salvation itself. You see the Father decrees. He decrees that there be salvation, that the Son would save those who belong to Him. And then we see the Son actually going out, working and fulfilling that, you know, laying down, laying down His life, living a, a life of perfect obedience, laying down His life on the cross, being buried, resurrected, all of that. The Son is working and fulfilling that plan of salvation. And then we see that the Spirit applies that salvation to the individual people who are believers. And so we see that same thing happening in salvation that also happened at creation. We see this triune God working out his will. So we can get a, a cosmological principle from John chapter 1. So John uses this loaded Greek term, logos, for a reason. The universe is not a chaotic mess of time and chance acting on matter. That's kind of our common view today is that you know, everything just exploded out of one point and it's just over time and just random chance acting on matter is the only reason why we have what we have today. All of the vast diversity that we have and the, the many different things we see in creation, it's all a result of blind evolution, just survival of the fittest, you know, you name it, all of these theories that we have of why things are the way they are. It's just based on time, chance, and just chaos. But what we see from this you know, perspective that we're seeing in John 1 is that the universe's organizing principle is the Word of God. And that's what we're going to see in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. So if you'll turn there, we're going to try to build this picture that we have, this picture of Christ being this unifying principle that we don't live in a chaotic universe, but that it is unified in Christ. So... Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And this is speaking of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So from this passage, we see that all things, and it, Paul goes through a painstaking process. Well, I say painstaking. It's, it's a, he, he gives these lists of things to show that there is not a single thing in all of creation, whether visible, invisible, seen, spiritual, physical, however you want to word it, there is nothing that exists that, was, that, that wasn't created by Christ, that wasn't created by him, through him, and for him. And there's a reason that language is used. It's, it's all created by him in that it's it's by his power that it comes about. It's created through him in that if we remember from this idea of the trinity of creation, of God decreeing and the Son working it, so it's created through him, it's created through the Son. God the Father creates all things through the Son, and it's all created for him. So that means everything has a purpose. It's all pointing forward to Christ as all belonging to him. That's why you know all you know all things belonging to him. That's that's what it's getting at when it's saying all things were made for him. So 
these think about these three prepositions that Paul uses. They're all there for a reason. And it shows how every single thing in creation is centered in Christ. That's why he uses all these different prepositions. And then notice um, in verse 17, Paul even says, All things hold together in him. And we can't really get closer to this idea of the logos you know, without, without saying that. That all things hold together in him. He is the fabric of... Of, of the entire universe, not in a pantheistic way. It's not that everything is divine. Uh, we're not saying that Christ is in every single thing, but what we are saying is that every single thing has been created through Christ and that Christ is holding those things together because he has authority and he has control and his presence is over those things. So he has, you know, he ultimately has the power over, over those things to hold it all together so that we could say that if Christ were to just cease doing what he's doing right now in holding all things together, that the universe would just completely fall apart. And, you know, without, you know, in, in simple terms, I mean, it would just cease to exist because it's, it's being held together right now by Christ. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at trees. You know, a tree has a trunk and branches and leaves and it's going through photosynthesis and all of the different processes to keep it going. And the only reason it works the way it does is because Christ is holding it together. That's one of the all things that is being held together in Christ. is because he is that unifying principle that holds that particular tree together as it's a part of this big universal whole that we call the universe or the world or however you want to word that. And you know, that, that applies to every single situation. The reason we can drive our cars down the road without it falling to pieces, you know, we, we have in our mindset, well, we have all these bolts and um, suspension and all of these things that we've designed by our scientific measures. It's like, yes, that's true. We, we, we have discovered how to use these things in a way that's good for us, but the very fabric of those materials, the way those atoms are held together and bond with each other, the energy itself and the way that works, all of that is being upheld by Christ. He is the creator. He is the controller of all of those things. He is holding those things together so that we might be able to use them and, you know, ultimately for his glory. And so that that's this unifying principle that we're talking about is that, yes, we might have these scientific explanations for how processes work and there are cause and effect relationships, but our idea of cause and effect relationships shouldn't be this just impersonal uh, mechanistic determinism that everything's just determined by cause and effect because it's a personal control. Christ is personally controlling all of these things. The reason that we are held to the ground is because of gravity. We call it gravity. We've observed it and know how it works. But in reality, from a biblical point of view, we should really say that gravity is just Christ's you know, consistent, logical way of keeping us to the ground. Because that's what it is. That's, that's how he is holding the universe together. If at any moment he decided that he wanted gravity to be half of what it is, then he could change that by the word of his power. But he's chosen not to. This is just how he is, has, has worked these things out and is holding all things together according to his will. And I want to look at one more chapter to, 
to really reemphasize this, and that's in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read that. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So you see that connection between he's spoken to us by his son, his son who is the word. So he's spoken his word. His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also... So here's that idea of through Christ, through the Son, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we see that Christ, the Son, God the Son, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. So this is the Son through whom God created all the world, same thing that we heard in Colossians chapter 1, for whom the earth was made, all the and, and ultimately the universe was made. It was made for Christ. It has a purpose. It's, you know, the, that word teleological, it's, it has a purpose, a forward-looking thing that's looking forward to, that all of the earth is moving towards the purpose that Christ has for it, that God the Father has for it, because... He made it for him. He made it for the Son. So the universe is not only held together by Christ, but it is also upheld by his word. And so that's the same idea that we were hitting at before, is that if Christ were to cease his work of sustaining the universe, then all things would just fall into disarray, and life as we know it would be completely done. We can't comprehend what it would be like for Christ to not be upholding the universe by the word of his power because that's all we know we've been living in it that's that's the only experience that we have so what we need to learn from this and what we should gain from thinking in this way is that we shouldn't view the world as just this mechanistically determined bundles of law we should view creation as filled with God's presence and held together by his ongoing almighty power. And so that that's going to come into conflict with opposing worldviews. It's going to come into conflict with our uh, with the views of most you know, modern people around us that have been influenced by the Enlightenment. Not that everything from the Enlightenment is bad, but you know, the whole purpose of the Enlightenment was to champion humans' autonomous reason, our, our ability just to reason on our own, apart from any other authority, apart from Christ, that, that our own reason is the authority. And so by doing that, what we've done is go out into the world, observe how Christ regularly upholds his universe, and we've said, well, we don't need Christ to explain that. We'll create our own laws and say, well, this is how the world functions. And then whenever we do that, that allows us to get rid of miracles and we just knock those out to the side and say, well, we don't need those. Um, and ultimately, our world can't function with miracles because these natural laws always function the way that they do. Well, it runs into problems when stuff happens that's hard to explain and it seems miraculous. And from a Christian's point of view, a miracle isn't necessarily this, this wild, crazy thing that happens where all these natural laws are broken but it's God just acting in a way that he doesn't normally act. Um, God acting in a way 
For example, think about the Red Sea parting. You know, normally, the way gravity works, water is going to go to its lowest point that it can go to and settle there. So the Red Sea is probably settled at this lowest point that it can settle at. Well, whenever it splits into two walls on each side, from our perspective in a you know enlightenment mindset, that's not a rationalistic thing that can happen. It's impossible for water just to stand up in two walls and the ground to be dry. But for God, that's not you know that's that's not a hard thing to do at all. I mean, literally, his he is upholding that water being there the way that water functions. The the gravity that was holding that water down, he was upholding that anyways. All he had to do was just change the way that he was upholding those things and, and make it to where they were two walls. He you know, blows a wind and makes it to where they're, they're two walls that are standing and dries the, the way for them to walk, for the people of Israel to walk across. I mean, God is upholding it either way. It's just a difference in how he's upholding it. And so we see that miracles happen in that way because God is already in control of everything. It's not that there's just this determined world that's out there working by mechanical laws of nature and then whenever god wants a miracle to happen that's when he intrudes and does something god's intruding and doing things all the time anyway he's actually upholding all things every single thing there's not a single atom of creation that is existing and doing its job apart from god upholding it and giving it the energy and the power and the motion to do its job and so everything is dependent on him that's back to our first point that all things were created out of nothing and they are dependent upon him and so i hope that this helps us and encourages us to have a more biblical mindset about the universe around us and that we can study science we can look at how 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 christ regularly upholds his universe and allows us to have this preconditions for for knowledge that that we know that things work generally in the same way and so we can base observations on things the way things have happened in the past and we can know that they're most likely going to function that way in the future not because of our own theories that we've based on our own reasonings but only because we know that christ is upholding all things by the word of his power and so science can really only be rooted in a biblical worldview because no other worldview allows for those preconditions for knowledge that we need to know that what we're going to study in the future is going to be anything like what we've studied in the past. And so that's kind of a brief introduction to a lot of different issues that we can jump into, but I think it's an important stepping stone for us thinking about the nature um, of our knowledge and who it's dependent on. It's ultimately dependent on on God and that that Logos, that Christ being the Word, that He is that unifying principle because all things were made by Him, through Him, and for Him. And apart from Him, there is no knowledge. As Colossians 2.3 says, you know, it's, it's in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the sooner we can recognize that as Christians, the sooner we can be faithful in all areas of culture as we seek to push that biblical worldview into every area of life. So this has been, do you have scripture for that? I thank you for listening, and I hope you were able to learn something today that, that can help you out in your Christian walk. Thanks.